Hey everyone, my name is Peter Chihuahua and I want to welcome you to the first ever episode of Bitcoin Magazine's Weekly Bits Podcast. I'm an editor here in the Bitcoin Magazine newsroom and right now I'm joined in the studio by my co-host and fellow Bitcoin Magazine editor, Colin Harper. Yo, what's good, Peter? Like uh, like you said, I'm an associate editor and also a staff writer here at Bitcoin Magazine. Cover a lot of things from just general news announcements, culture, and technology. And uh, really stoked about this inaugural podcast. And Awesome, man. The goal of the show is to uh, discuss some of the stories we're covering at Bitcoin Magazine in the news- newsroom. Uh, we'll dissect some of those stories that you or another one of our intrepid reporters have written, that I've edited, and that people might want to hear more about. Um, So without further ado, let's just dive into our first story. Uh, Coming up first today, I wanted to talk about a story that you wrote, Colin. It's on the site now. Its title is, Gab is launching a Bitcoin education effort uh, soliciting donations. So to start, maybe you could give some background on what exactly Gab is. Yeah, so Gab is this uh, pretty controversial alternative social media platform. It looks a lot like Twitter if you've ever used if you've ever used it. Its UI is quite similar, a uh, different color scheme, green and black though. And uh, the reason I call it highly controversial, something I kind of got flack for in the uh, Twitter mentions for the article that we published, uh, is because it's billed as a uh, free speech network, and what they mean by that is. They don't moderate what gets put on the site unless it's like, you know, something like obviously off off limits like child porn, like they will monitor stuff like that. But uh, they typically don't moderate any speech. So that's why it has become a an oasis for things like the alt-right, the far right. Um, not always. There are just some general run-of-the-mill conservatives or there are even some leftists on the platform. There aren't that many, though. It's mainly used as a um, kind of a hub for, uh, you know, uh, far-right thinking, in some cases white nationalist thinking. And uh, this is why it's been controversial, because Gab will not police most of the speech that's on its platform. Uh, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooter in 2018 actually posted on the site a lot, and uh, that led to it being blacklisted by like web servers. It went down for a while. Uh, they had to find a new host to actually host the website. Um, I think Cloudflare booted them off. And they've also been censored from a lot of other things like, you know, uh, AOL and Gmail and Yahoo are starting to blacklist their emails. Uh, PayPal, Stripe, Square, even BitPay and Coinbase have barred them from accepting uh, payments along with a lot of payment processors. A lot of banks won't open business accounts with them. Uh, So it's become a real case study in what free speech means on the Internet, if it means anything. Right. So that's sort of... uh controversy and uh, philosophy of encouraging free speech, but then the practicality that that means it's, um, in some people's eyes, for lack of a better word, a bit of a cesspool of hate speech and sort of a breeding ground for potential violent action in real life. That's sort of what's left it um, as a platform unable to Uh, find the funding it needs to operate. And that's sort of what's prompted this latest news that we covered in your article, which is that it wants to increasingly turn to Bitcoin as a funding mechanism. It wants to prompt Bitcoin education to get more people to adopt it, to sort of spread Bitcoin, I think in turn, kind of helping its own coffers um, is the thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, like you were saying it, when the mainstream media covers Gab, 
like you can expect in the first paragraph, just like relentless invective, right? It's like alt-right cesspool gab, like, you know, kicked off of Cloudflare for hosting white nationalist rhetoric that led to the slaughter of innocents, something like that, right? They totally embellish it because they know their audience. Uh, But, you know, they're not wrong in some of the criticisms, I think. But whether or not you think that that speech should be hosted is kind of beside the point because Gab has not, like you said, they've been cut off from uh, primary payment rails. Uh, You know, they they can't get fiat in unless it's through a check that's mailed to Andrew Torba or their headquarters. So they've increasingly relied on Bitcoin. They had they built their own Bitcoin portal with BTC pay server, I think, a little while back. Uh, and now they're doubling down on it. They want to start integrating Lightning. Um, they haven't really re- released a roadmap for what that's going to look like. Uh, that might also be, you know, they might integrate it into Gab's very design where you can start doing micro tips and things like that. But Bitcoin has become its primary, like, I think it's something like, not primary, but I think um, in the blog post that Torba uh, posted yesterday, something like 30% of their operating budget is funded directly from Bitcoin payments which is pretty incredible, right? I mean, and uh, again, I think that the whole thing here, whether or not you agree with what Gab is saying, uh, they're proving that Bitcoin's use case is a censorship-resistant form of money is really paying off. And, you know, they, of course, they were censored by BitPay and Coinbase, but those are centralized anyway. Uh, they went the, to the route of using BTC Pay Server for, for donations now. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's going to be one of those things where it's simultaneously going to prove Bitcoin's value and use case, but it also could be a kind of something that would give people who aren't already in the industry a little bit of hesitancy and say, oh, Gab uses this thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was reading your article, I'm thinking like, okay, is this good or bad for Bitcoin? Which is a question that runs in my mind of almost anything that we cover. And I'm of two minds of it. Like you say, I'm thinking on the one hand, you know, ugh, this is another piece of news that normies are going to bring up to me to be like oh bitcoin you mean that like that gab money or you know (laughs) that money that's potentially fueling like hate speech on the internet but on the other hand i mean this is a perfect use case for bitcoin and an example of bitcoin functioning pretty much as i would think satoshi kind of designed it to function yeah absolutely and you know i think this is this is this good or bad for bitcoin there are plenty of people who would say it's good for bitcoin because everything's good for Bitcoin to these people, right? Um, I, I'm neither here nor there, whether it's good or bad. It's going to be bad for some people, right? Like you, like you said, the normies are like people who probably weren't inclined towards even giving Bitcoin its time of day anyway. You know, they're going to see it as a negative thing. And, you know, we're all going to have to withstand the conversations. But at this, by the same token, Gab's educational effort, it says it wants to bring Bitcoin to a million new users. Uh, Gab's got more than a million users on its platform. Some of them are Bitcoin fans already. A lot of them probably know about it, uh, but might not be totally into it, might be a little skeptical, you know. Um, but Gab's going to increase exposure to those people. So it's like, if a million more people are buying Bitcoin and supporting the cryptocurrency, does it really matter who those people are? Well, to the network, obviously it doesn't. But I'd also kind of would push back against, obviously I would push ga- back against people who tell me, oh, look, it's just that Gab money. Well, no, it's used by Gab, of course, but it's just money. Dave and I this week, uh, one of our other, one of the Bitcoin Magazine podcast hosts, interviewed um, Agatha uh, Basilar for for the podcast, and she's challenging Nancy Pelosi for one of the most left-leaning seats in the country, San Francisco's, uh, San Francisco, California's 12th uh, congressional district seat. She's a Bitcoiner. She's held Bitcoin since 2011. She believes in single-payer healthcare, 
and also is fighting for the new Green Deal. It's like highly progressive candidate. And she thinks that Bitcoin could also be used to boost transparency in the political campaign and donations realm. So, you know, it's on the obverse side, like, yeah, it's giving Gab money so that it can create a platform and curate a platform that is hospitable to these extremist far right views. But by the same token, Someone on the progressive side of the aisle sees it as being an agent for political campaign reform and also social activism and social justice reform. So, um, you know, it's it's all about Andreas Antonopoulos told me in an interview in 2018, you know, people tend to see Bitcoin through their preconceived political biases and lens, right? And that's exactly what this is. So people on the left are going to say, oh, it's just for those crazy far right people. But people on their side of the aisle see good in it as well. For sure. I think uh, so. Anyone who reads the Gab coverage and feels like, oh, man, I hate Bitcoin being associated with Gab. Just stay tuned. By the time this podcast is live, Colin's Agatha story will be up there as well. So then you can just read that one right after and realize it's really in the hand of the user uh, to determine like whether Bitcoin is, quote unquote, used for good or evil. Absolutely. I'm of the mindset. It's like Bitcoin's agnostic. It doesn't care what you use it for. I mean, it's been used for drugs. It's been used to launder money been used to buy food, coffee. It's been used to send uh, funds to Venezuela through BTC Venezuela to feed uh, Venezuelans ravaged by the socio-political and economic turmoil there. It doesn't care what you use it for. And that's that's the beauty of it. Like I'm not, I might not agree with everything that's said on Gab, but I'm going to defend Gab's right to have a payment rail that will keep it going. Uh, okay. So the next story I want to discuss here, uh, it's published on the site under the Headline, Widow of Quadriga CX Founder to Forfeit $9 Million to Exchange Victims. It was actually written by our staff writer, Jimmy. But Colin, I know you've followed this story for months, very well versed in uh, all the details of the Quadriga CX drama. So I'll give you the chance to catch up briefly any, any listeners who aren't so familiar just with the TLDR on it. Yeah, so this whole saga kind of fell out of the news cycle for a while. I mean, rightfully so, because like, you know, it was, it just, it was harped on for so long, and we didn't really have any notable news, and it's kind of like been dormant. But for those of you who don't know, uh, Quadriga CX was the largest exchange in Canada, most used. Our One of our uh, other editors, Christy Harkin, used it, some of our writers uh, Jesse Wilms have used it. And what ended up happening was, is it went offline following the alleged death of its founder, Gerald Cotton, while he was honeymooning in India. This happened at the end of 2017. And in January of, uh, or sorry, excuse me, this happened at the end of 2018. And come January 2019, uh, basically the exchange was like, we're insolvent. And they claimed that uh, Gerald Cotton died with the only knowledge of its private keys. Uh, now, depending on your view on this, uh, depending on how scrupulous, scrupulous you want to be, uh, someone running an exchange with the most trading volume in Canada not having a backup for its private keys, you know, sounds at at best just complete malfeasance, at worst like a completely sketchy just scapegoat for other sketchy stuff. And there were some mysterious circumstances around Cotton's death. Uh, yeah, for sure. There was uh, the the Globe and Mail, one of uh, one of um Canada's like uh, big news outlets did a really good feature investigative story where they went to India where he died. They interviewed the a woman who was going to one of the women who was going to embalm him, one of the doctors, she was a, she was a private practice doctor. 
and she wouldn't take his body because it came from the hotel that he was staying at rather than the hospital that he allegedly died at. And that raised red flags for her. Um, there, there's some other things, you know, he had Crohn's disease and they said that he died from basically a perforated, um, a perforated, uh, intestine. And he basically got, um, infected from that and died of, um, septic shock. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of murky stuff surrounding it. Um, and there are a lot of shady actors involved, um, like this dude named Omar Danani, also known as Michael Patron, who was, you know, got arrested in the United States, moved to Canada, I got arrested in the United States for financial fraud, moved to Canada, changed his name. So it's just this whole mess, right? And uh, basically what happened was is it went to uh, Canadian court for uh, basically um, the estate filed for creditor protections because you had all these people. They owed people $190 million. These are exchange users who are kind of left high and dry with the excuse that we can't access your funds because they died with our CEO. Exactly. And not even just not access like cryptocurrency funds, but uh, like they had some outstanding debts in actual fiat and they had these crazy schemes. Like I did a, this, this story occupied, I was obsessed. Everyone stay tuned for the Quadriga CX uh, full on, um, not nonfiction novel that Colin's working on. <laughs> I, I mean, I would love to do something like that one day because I mean, it occupied as you remember. Like, um, I think this was uh, you were you were editing you were you were about to pivot towards Bitcoin Magazine from distributed at the time, but like from February until March, I think it was like like fifty percent of my output was just Quadriga stories, and like I broke some news on it, like the the, the news that basically they were sending uh, users cash deposits. You know, that was like an option where you could have like, like not just like a few hundred dollars, but like tens of thousands of dollars mailed to your doorstep. Um, they had physical pickup locations. Yeah, right. I mean, just this crazy. I mean, the more I got into it, the fishier this thing smelled. And uh, they just had to- all, these, all these unconventional um, practices, which some of them were, you know, basically justified as uh, be, as basically Quadriga had to do this because the banking uh, banking for crypto businesses in Canada is just so screwed up, even more screwed up than the United States. But um, anyway, so this thing went to uh, went to court. They filed for creditor protections because there were like 100,000 people with uh, claims over, you know, claims for $190 million worth of funds. And Ernst & Young was appointed as the monitor of this case. Eventually, it got moved to bankruptcy proceedings because Ernst & Young basically said, guys, we don't think the money is even here at all. We think the money has been spent. Um, Gerald and Jennifer Robertson, his uh, widow, uh, had a very lavish uh, vacationing habit, uh, spent money at some of the nicest hotels around the world, India, Asia, all those places. So all that to get to the most recent news, uh, Quadriga, through the bankruptcy court proceedings, basically um, secured a, um, I don't know, it's like basically, I don't know what you would call it in formal legal A's, but the court is telling Jennifer Robertson that she has to liquidate $9 million worth of assets to pay back creditors. And this is just a drop in the bucket for the $190 million that they owe these creditors outstanding. But, you know, finally, these people were going to get some sort of relief. Jennifer Robertson is kind of washing her hands of it and saying, I thought this was legitimate money from Gerald's business and his salary. I did not know that it was dirty money. Yeah, so Jimmy's article largely focuses on this statement from uh, Robertson, uh, sort of describing the, she doesn't get into any of the details about how many, how uh, much money is in the resolution. That's uh, from a joint uh, separate statement from EY. 
But her statement is largely like, I'm so glad I'll be able to move on after this. And, you know, I had no idea that Gerald, who she calls Jerry, was involved in sort of these nefarious activities. And I just want to, you know, uh, all those aggrieved parties to just feel like relief after this. And my impression reading it is kind of like, okay, I hope that this brings some resolution to uh, Jennifer Robertson, but for the users, I don't know. I wouldn't feel that relieved. I'd feel like this was still not enough to compensate me for such a crazy saga. And so I am curious on your perspective, Colin, someone who, you know, really had the bulletin board set up with all the threads tying all the conspiracies and trying to get to the bottom of this. You know, I'm sure there's going to be more to come, but the idea that this $9 million payout is some sort of resolution wrapping up this drama. Do you feel satisfied like there's a bow around it? No, I think that like that's that like her saying that like, you know, look, her saying I can finally move on. That's either naive, insular or callous or all of the above, because like, you know, this has been probably a stressful time for her. And, you know, no, no one really knows what her role in all of this is. Right. I mean, there are people who have speculated that she like conspired to murder Gerald. Right. There's some theory that she's the benefactor. Yes. Yeah, and that, like, some people say that even she and, like, Gerald's former business partner, Omar Danani slash Michael Patron, the ex-convict from the United States, like, conspired with her, which is, like, you know, kind of crazy, and you can't totally give that oxygen because there's nothing to corroborate that. But one thing I do know for certain is that people were sent money or wired money from a bank account that was linked to a real estate business that was in Jennifer Robertson's name. Now, to what extent she knew what Gerald was doing, I can't say. But she was definitely involved in their business dealings to some marginal degree. And I would be shocked that she didn't know that something a little bit shady was going on, right? Like she was either naive to it or she knew what was going on and just kind of did enough at arm's length to kind of like have enough of separation there to where she wasn't going to get fully implicated. But, you know, sure, maybe she can step away from this at this point, but there are still hundreds of thousands, you know, 100,000 plus people out there. Um, Some of these people, I've talked to them, they had hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars worth of money on this exchange. They're not going to get any of it back. And, you know, I, I think that that's pretty sad. I think that there are a few uh, lenses through which to look at this. Number one, you could look at it through the lens of some, you know, skeptical crypto journalists like Amy Castor or David Gerard, like look at, oh, crypto companies just doing shady crypto company stuff, which is true. But, you know, again, I would just point to the regulators at this point and say, look, guys, you need to get something structured. You need to have some formal process by which to vet these companies and to license them so that shit like this, like this stops happening. I mean, how many exchange hacks and just weird stuff because the Mount Gox hack in 2013, 2014, I mean, we still don't know what happened there. People are still calling that saying it could be an inside job, right? And, you know, until we get some real clear regulations and frameworks constructed around these companies and these entities, this stuff's just going to keep happening. And, you know, um, the, the, the creditors and the users are going to be the one footing the bill for this kind of malfeasance. Yeah, definitely. I think most of us probably around the company in the newsroom are eager for more clear regulations. It's not super helpful when the regulations to the degree uh, that they have come out because they kind of uh, miss a lot of details, almost add more confusion than they clear up. Uh, And that leads us to the third story I want to talk about here. This just hit our our site. Its uh, headline is IRS releases tax guidance on hard forks and airdrops. Um, So this is reporting on an announcement from the 
IRS leading to a new regulation they've put out trying to add some tax clarity around uh, what the implications are when a cryptocurrency hard forks uh, and or you're just airdrop some tokens. Um, when do you have to pay taxes and why? I think that's been a big question on everyone's mind. And to quickly summarize the article, I think people were hoping for a little bit more clear guidance. And if anything, the guidance kind of misses the mark or seems to betray some kind of like lack of understanding of exactly what an airdrop is from the IRS. Is that your take? Um, Yeah, a little bit. I think like, so I think the IRS seems to have somewhat, so like a lot of the initial reports said that they mix up airdrops and hard forks. Um, A little bit, I think that they're just lacking understanding of how these things actually work in practice and the nuance therein. I saw a lot of criticisms about them saying, you know, if you hold token A and then you get airdrop 25 of token B, then you owe taxes on token B. People were saying, well, that doesn't happen. Are you talking about a fork? And I think that's where a lot of the confusion came from. But one thing they're talking about with those airdrops is that those things happen all the time, right? Like when I... How many uh, airdropped uh, shit coins do you think you have? Oh, I, last time I checked, so when I was still back in the go-go days, when I was still doing stuff with Ethereum before I before I joined the Bitcoin Magazine team, I, I checked my ERC twenty wallet from my ledger, like on on like you know my Ether wallet a while ago, and I had like ten or twelve like just random tokens for like and like I think the cumulative value like value because like these things are extremely illiquid. I think it was like thirty bucks worth, but yeah, I've been airdropped about a dozen I think um, over the course of being in the industry, and so. So to kind of like step back and say what was said in the IRS's latest guidance, basically they said if you claim or have possession of a of, of forked currency at the time of the fork, so let's just use Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash for an example. When Bitcoin Cash hit your wallet in August, whatever, 2017, I think that was, or maybe a little bit earlier in 2017, when Bitcoin Cash forked from Bitcoin, when that Bitcoin Cash hit your account, the market rate that it was when it hit your account is basically what you owe for taxes when you got that currency, right? And the same applies for airdrops. So once it comes in your possession, the market rate for that forked coin or that airdrop is a taxable event. And so for the shitcoin thing, my question is like, so like I just have my Ethereum wallet, right? Like, and they drop these tokens based on what some, like whether or not you have an address or like what tokens you had at the time, you know? So like if you held one token, then for whatever reason, the airdrop token is like, we're going to airdrop tokens to all of these token holders. So if you held shitcoin A, then shitcoin B is going to airdrop just because you held shitcoin A. Well, for me, just me personally, I don't, I'm not claiming those because I haven't touched them. And I didn't even know they were in my wallet until I viewed my wallet to see that they were in there. Right. Right. Like, and I, I, I did not solicit these. I've never touched them. I have no, I have absolutely zero plans to liquidate these coins. So this seems like the most vocal and like kind of clear cut outrage that I saw on crypto Twitter. I think Peter Van Valkenburg put it from Coin Center, put it like, so if if you someone comes and buries a gold bar in your backyard. Exactly. And I think I also saw from one uh, personality stop and decrypt. He said, if someone drops a bag of garbage on my doorstep, does that mean that I am then responsible for that bag of garbage? Right. Garbage might be a a better metaphor than gold. I mean, like the 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 analogy that Peter gave stands up, um, I think. And I think that is the question there. I mean, that's the big question I have. Like, what 
constitutes ownership and what constitutes control. Like certainly I control those coins, but am I claiming them? No, I would not say that I'm claiming them. These were unsolicited airdrops. And that's some of the nuance that I think that the that the IRS is just missing where they don't really understand the, like the complexities of like, okay, guys, no, this isn't like um, shit coin company B sent out like a, a poll or like some sort of thing and said, would you like our airdrop? No, they just do this stuff, right? I mean, anyone who has an account on Binance knows this. Like, I got airdropped 500 Tron back in the day. Like, what? Like, I didn't ask for Tron. Like, this was back in 2017, and it just showed up in my Binance account. And I think that's another question that we have to ask ourselves too, right? If you have an account at Binance or Coinbase, and they support a fork or an airdrop on behalf of all their users, am I liable for those assets? Because I'm not holding the keys, right? I would think that actually no... Coinbase and Binance should be liable for those taxes because I never asked for that and they're doing it on behalf of their users. But whether or not I decide to trade or withdraw that asset is up to me. If I don't touch those coins, in my opinion, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not uh, at the IRS making these laws or making these regulations. For me, I think that intent to capitalize on an airdrop or fork should be dictated by whether or not you move that asset or try to trade it on the open market. Yeah, that seems like a bit of a no-brainer, also coming from someone who doesn't work at the IRS. But I think sentiment-wise and the way we you know, cover the news-wise, my feeling was people were really eager for more clarity from the IRS and in general in this space. We're not resistant, for the most part, to regulations, but when a regulation comes out that's a bit kind of missing the mark, unfair kind of betrays some sort of lack of understanding of how airdrops, for instance, like actually work. It's almost less helpful. It's almost like a step back or but hopefully it will be the framework that gets built upon to give the industry a little bit more structure that that it kind of needs. Yeah, I'm, I, I think that's really the thing there is it's like, you know, you're going to have some people who just think Bitcoin shouldn't be taxed at all. And like, that's just not realistic. I hate to break it to you. Like, sure, sure. You can buy it on a, like a decentralized exchange or from a buddy and mix it and like hide it somewhere. And like you probably would escape scrutiny, at least right now. Like you can still do that. But like if you buy it over the market, KYC or open market, KYC, spot market, OTC, whatever, they're going to want to get taxes um, and I think that the 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 thing that we're asking for, like you pointed out, is like a lot of us are not even asking for no taxes. We're just like work with us for something that makes sense. And the other thing that they came out with, they clarified that every time. So if you move Bitcoin or uh, a cryptocurrency to another wallet in your control, that's not a taxable event. But one thing they did say, if you pay for services in Bitcoin then you got to report it. And it goes both ways. If you bought Bitcoin at 10K and you used it to buy something at 8K, then that's a capital loss, which actually kind of works in your benefit. But if you bought it at 10K and it goes up to 12K and then you spend it on something, that's a capital gains. So they were very clear on that, which is a blow to people like me who like to spend their Bitcoin because it just creates a huge tax headache. It's a headache for my two sets that at least follows kind of basic logic those two and i mean it would have been absurd if you had to pay some sort of penalty when your bitcoin or whatever never gets converted into u.s dollars which is the only you know which is where the irs should be focusing their tax implications if you're just moving between walls that seemed good i guess always good to get that 
confirmation, but I wasn't surprised by that, right? That's like fairly common no, sense. No, I'm, I wasn't surprised by it either. And, you know, I do think that there is a logic to this, right? It's like we've never, like people don't pay for things in gold, but like if you could pay for things in other commodities, like if that commodity increases in value, theoretically your wealth grew there. So yeah, like the IRS is going to still want to tax those events when you spend it because like what was worth $2 one day is now worth $4 and you can spend those $4 where that used to be two, you know? So you just had a, you know, a, a, a 100% increase in your wealth for that transaction. I don't like it, but like like you said, it makes sense. But you know what? Net net, if that means like Bitcoin's gaining value, your cryptocurrency's gaining value, and a little bit of that skimmed off the top, you could be getting rich faster, but not too bad of a problem to have, I guess. Uh, so that should do it for the first episode of the Weekly Bits podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at As I Lay Hodling. Be sure to subscribe to the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network and all of Bitcoin Magazine's podcasts. We've got some fun new ones like this coming out and also Bitcoin Magazine Happy Hour, uh, which we're trying to release every Friday. So be sure to stay tuned for those new podcasts and uh, give us a listen, subscribe, and uh, tell your friends.